You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is Danny Anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. As always, I'm recording from uh, the little, what I call the Inferno Studios here at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And today I have a very special treat. Um, I'm really honored to have Ross Bennis on the show to discuss his new book that just came out this year called Rural Rebellion, um, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. I'm really um, looking forward to this conversation. This book touches on a lot of things that I've been really kind of thinking about a lot anyway, and it gave me something, um, a lot to think about. It gave me a lot to think about. Uh, Ross, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good, Daddy. Thanks for having me on the program. Oh, I'm very, very um, honored to have you. This book was a, a really um, intriguing read. It was really well written, and um, oh, I think you. you're filling a really interesting gap in the in quote unquote the discourse. And so, um, I'm very, very excited to uh, to talk to you today about this book and some of the um, um, the specific aspects of political and social culture that you uh, talk about in w- with regard to Nebraska and its shift from a rather um, a less partisan state to a more hyper-partisan state. And um, I think it's a, a, a lot of fascinating stuff to talk about. Before we get into the book specifically, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work and what you uh, generally do? Sure. So um, I'm from Brainerd, Nebraska. That's what led me to write the book. I, I lived in a town of 300 people for the first 19 years of my life. And from there, I moved to the state capital of Lincoln to go to college for five years. And then I moved to Detroit and I moved to New York City to pursue journalism jobs. And I've been in New York City now for seven years, writing for all sorts of places. I was an intern at Esquire magazine, and now I'm a market analyst uh, for eMarketer, writing about advertising. And in between there, I've written for many publications, kind of all over the board. And I've written two other books. My first books were about sex and uh, sex research. And then I decided to shift to uh, Nebraska politics, which is, you know, just the natural transition that (laughs) most sex writers make. (laughs) I'm trying to think of a a clever, uh, you know, segue from that, but I really can't. It kind of writes itself, actually. Um, No, that's a that's a great bio. And your your bio is very interesting. I it's weird because I also uh, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I lived in New York City myself for a a time in the late 90s. And uh, and you do find yourself as a kind of quote unquote Midwesterner, um, although I'm sort of at the edge of the Midwest, you're sort of right in the heart of it, um, as in an odd position when you live in New York City. And um, and I think you kind of craft a lot of your like writing voice out of that weird tension. Um, I, I detect that in this book. Um, how does it, what is your experience as this kind of, you feel like you, you kind of present yourself as this oddball in New York City? Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um Whenever I talk about my experience in a small town, um, I get some strange looks. 
And, and then people often always assume that I've just always wanted to be here because I am here and I, and I'm happy to be in New York city and I enjoy my job a lot, but it's, I'm here because of the jobs, you know, like if these jobs were located in Kansas city, I'd live in Kansas city. <laughs> uh, I, I, there's nothing about New York specifically that I'm in love with, but, um, I feel like here people assume you're in, in love with the city. Whereas in the Midwest, I don't think anyone assumes you're in love with the Midwest. They just assume you like are there because you either were born there or like you married someone from there. <laughs> yeah, um, I get that. I totally get that. And so, well, l- let me just kind of get into the book um, at hand. I One thing that really strikes me um, as I was reading this, it, it really touched on a lot of things that I've been kind of thinking about a lot lately um, in the way that our political identities kind of almost are structured as if we're, as if they're sports fandoms and, and we have this kind of um, entrenched position with which we kind of bring that, that analysis to every situation. And I'm really interested in like the structural, um, Oh my gosh, this, the structural reasons, I suppose that kind of feed a loop um, that increases this weird partisanship and this lack of um, connection, this um, overt disconnect between the coasts and the Midwest, for example, in this case. Um, And your book really, really gets at that. Um, And and I feel like in some ways it splits the difference. I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. It splits the difference between, between Thomas Frank's what's the matter with Kansas and JD Vance's hillbilly elegy. Um, I feel like you're, you're sort of finding a part of that conversation, but in a, a, from a different, a completely different angle. What is your reasons for writing this book? Uh, I think that's all fair. What you said, both of those books were um, listed as the top comp titles in my book proposal. And I, I did try to take some of the analysis of Frank, but like any more, I don't know how I would say it, a more empathetic way. And in some of the, you know, the memoir parts of Vance's books. And as far as reading about, uh, your political parties as teams. Um, that's totally true. And I like to say that in, in Nebraska, um, rooting for the Democratic Party is kind of like rooting for the Husker football team because they so rarely win. And <laughs> it's become painful to be a fan of either of those lately. So though, the question though you asked was, was uh, why did I write this? I wrote the book, is seen since Donald Trump got elected, a fair amount of coverage of these towns like my hometown, which were previously pretty ignored in the national press. But those the coverage usually wasn't um you know that deep. It was usually a news article or a news feature from someone who just went there for a few days. And everyone always tried to kind of explain the conservatives there as if they were like trying to describe a condition someone had. Like if I was going to explain like why um I have ulcerative colitis or something, you know, it was, it was like, they were like medicalizing it. And I, I didn't like that, even though I'm not that conservative on most issues, it was always presented. So I wanted to show why in my hometown people seem like they feel like they're being rational when they reject national liberal policies instead of, you know, just saying they're irrationally, cranky people. So I, I wanted to come at that and and use my own point of view, because especially when I lived in small town Nebraska, I was more conservative then than I am now. And to me at that time, I didn't think I was highly irrational and uh, believe in the things I did. And when I look back, I don't want to just get all over my friends or my former self. So um, 
I, I guess to explain myself too, there's a great parody where Nebraska, I believe, is like the nicest people and throughout the Midwest, just really friendly people. I lived in Detroit. I mean, the people there were so nice, so much nicer than in New York City. And um, yet these areas have embraced a man like Trump so strongly who um, is so narcissistic, you know, and, and so petty um, that I kind of wanted to dive into that deeper and say, like, you know, why is that? You're looking into the contradictions, and, and I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, one thing that um, really struck out as you were talking there to me is I, I live in that region of Pennsylvania, sort of the southwestern part of Pennsylvania, that is um, often caricatured amongst liberal media as this sort of Trump country. And it is, right? If you look at the map in shades of red and blue, we're a very red part of Pennsylvania. Um, but I do remember in the wake of the 2016 election, there was so much hand wringing um, about that from the from you know so the people who write mainstream journalism all come from um, these coasts, right? And there was an article, and I honestly can't remember the publication uh, that covered this uh, area. They came to Johnstown, which is a very um, put upon area. Johnstown is very, um, had just a history, I mean, beyond the floods, right? There's just many, many economic tragedies over the years. And, and, and this poor city has been through it. Right. Um, and yes, there are terrible racists who live there. Okay. Um, but there was a, an article that came out and I think it was Politico or something like that. Um, but they, interviewed some people at a local diner and basically only represented it as if they were Trumpian because they were racist. Right. And, yeah. um, and, and it was just a very unfair, um, caricature and there was some backlash and then, um, some local uh, person who was running for office here wrote a, a retract or wrote a, a retort to that basically that kind of defended the area on some level. Right. And I feel like your um, book really kind of steps in, to, it takes us with a much more nuanced position, right? And, and I find it um, so refreshing, frankly, to read. <laughs> and so um, I was very, very um, pleased that you kind of have this. I you 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 at one time can recognize the political um, faults of this rising conservatism, right wing conservatism, not even just like traditional Nebraskan conservatism, um, alongside understanding the smug elitism of liberals and the way that they deal with this. And, and you sort of paint a picture where there's this almost like feedback loop where one thing intensifies the other. And, and, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating book. Um, can I begin somewhere in the middle of the book, actually, <laughs> instead of at the beginning? Um, because I think Nebraska is such a fascinating fascinating political um, space. You talk about its unicameral um, legislature, and, and uh, that was new to me. And, and I find it to be a really interesting representation of, of like an independent spirit in the state that somehow gets co-opted by sort of right-wing um, activism. And so do you want to sort of narrate the, the weird political structure a little bit yep. and, and how that kind of uh, sets up or how it plays into the dynamic you're observing here? Well, I'm glad that you are fascinated by the unicameral because sometimes I worry that I'm getting too into the weeds on something that's specific to one state. But I wanted to really highlight it because it's so weird. We are the only state in the United States with a single house legislature, and it's also nonpartisan. So we have just 49 state lawmakers in one body, and there aren't any party labels. So there's no minority or majority leaders. There's no whip. Every bill gets a hearing no matter what. It's very different 
than most state houses. And I believe it's better because of that. And the reason it's that way is because in the 30s, um, you know, it's the Great Depression and people wanted to cut taxes and uh, they wanted to have less government because no one had any money. And that's how they passed the Nebraska legislature. They said, hey, we're going to uh, move this from two house to single house. It's going to save us hundreds of thousands of dollars every year and you'll pay less money to fund the government. And, you know, this is happening while everyone's losing their jobs and they supported it and it's been in place ever since. And it's been fantastic. It's allowed people to come together on issues instead of on parties. So if there's a vote on um, Medicaid or the death penalty, you know, it's not just R's versus D's historically. It, it would be like people who really believed in this issue would vote on this issue no matter what party because there weren't parties. However, since 2000, it has become much more partisanized. Our nonpartisan legislature is becoming more partisan to resemble every other place. And there's three main reasons for that. One is term limits. They were adopted in 2000. That was pushed by a lot of outside money. They were pitched as like, oh, you know, these people are here too long. We should, you know, get rid of them, uh, bring in new blood. That way, single, you know, a single person won't have too much influence. Well, what happened is when you have half of the body turning over every four years, the political parties have way more influence in selecting replacement candidates. And so donors and parties are more active than they used to be. And then um, the other thing is deregulation of campaign finance that's happened nationally, but then it has an effect on a local level. So when, you know, huge donors can remain hidden, uh, that seeps into our nonpartisan legislature. And suddenly you'll see races where there's like $700,000 spent on a single legislative race in Nebraska in a district of 35,000 people where the person who wins that race is only going to uh, get paid 12 grand a year. I mean, it's asinine. And then the third thing is our governor is um, very partisan. He is very wealthy. He comes from a family worth billions and he's vindictive and he will target anyone who votes against him, even fellow Republicans. So when he came into office, we had more moderate Republicans who were, yeah, they were Republican in name, but they didn't just vote the party line if they didn't believe something or they didn't think it was good for the district. They were independent in the spirit of our unicameral. And when they voted against him on DACA driver's license, giving driver's licenses to DACA youth, governor spent hundreds of thousands of dollars running attack ads during the primary and endorsing a candidate further to the right who would basically just, you know, do whatever the governor wanted. And so that's eroded the independence of our legislature. Some of those norms still stay in place, but our unique system has seen its structure attacked in the last 20 years. And it's a really interesting, I think, case or test case where you have both kind of structural reasons, the, the passing of term limits, for example, combined with like a, a bad faith player, right? A bad faith actor um, coming in and, and sort of like changing the nature of something. Uh, and, and I think that that really kind of serves as a microcosm for a lot of um, the little situations that you look at throughout this book. Uh, and, and I just found it to be a very fascinating uh, way to set up the whole conversation. Um, it's a unique state that we're talking about, and it gives us, I think, a unique insight into um, the issues that are really kind of nationwide. Um, and so um, one thing that I'm taking away from this book 
is that, and, and you can sort of correct me, um, my interpretation of this, is that you identify a lot of these, the, the values, the sentiments that um, distinguish rural people from Nebraska. Um, these are good values in a lot of cases, ideas of independence um, and helping one's neighbors and those sorts of things. Um, somehow those good values get um, activated or even weaponized by Republican like policy. Um, and therefore those good values get sort of twisted into supporting um more, you know, I, I don't want to, if I have Republican listeners out there, I'm trying to talk around the fact a lot of these policies are bad. Okay. Let me just be out yeah. let me just honest with it. And so, um, I, I feel like that's sort of a major theme I see in each of these chapters is that you're looking not, so you're not looking at the people from a critical perspective, you're appreciating what is good there and you're documenting how those good values get attached to these kind of poisonous political, um, agendas. Yep, that's fair. I mean, just to give you an example, I think a good value there is the community that people get from their religious organizations. I write a lot about religion. Um, I, I was Catholic, and um, it, it's done a lot of good for people, and not just like a spiritual good. I mean, it really brings people together in a genuine way, and those towns would be so much worse off if they didn't have their churches. But then, like, what I see as the downside of that is something like um, government mandated health care is being uh, introduced by President Obama or by, you know, some bill in the state legislature. And it gets attacked from the pulpit as something that's going to fund abortions. And that's that's the only thing they talk about, you know. So you could be obviously against Obamacare for many logical reasons and have issues with many of the provisions within it, but I always found it not genuine when it was discussed as if like, well, this thing is just going to, you know, make legal abortion uh, more widely available and it's not going to do anything else. You know, we're not going to talk about pre-existing condition protections at all, which would greatly benefit um, many people in the parish. We're just going to like talk about the culture war part of how this bill could affect people. And that is how the good values can be activated when you know something within their community like religion um, gets very politicized by a single party like Republican. Yeah, exactly. And so let's, a lot of my listeners are, you know, religious. And so I would like to kind of um, spend a little time unpacking that aspect of this book. I, I feel like what you point out is exactly right. The fact that the church plays, uh, and you're, you're talking about the Catholic church, but let's extend that to sort of all. Oh, yeah. this, I talk about Catholicism in Nebraska just because that's my life, but you could extend that to other states and other denominations. Yeah. And so one common like obstacle, I think, that's obvious to any sort of like liberal or left agenda is alienation, right? People are alienated from one another. The, the, the civic life has collapsed in, in so many ways. Um, and this is something that um, liberals and the left um, both kind of like lament, right? And so yeah, like bowling alone, right? Exactly. It's the bowling alone um, problem. And so 
the church, um, whatever denomination you're looking at, is one of the few civic societies where organization is possible, right? Where where people come together, not just for you know political purposes, but for social life, right? And so liberals tend then to kind of attack the church because of the political outcomes that they see happening in it, the the advocacy from the pulpit, as you talk about here. But what they're neglecting is the opportunity that bringing those people together um, on a weekly basis uh, offers like people, right? And for some reason, Republicans have been better at um, activating that, that, that aspect of life. No, I, I agree with that. And I think if Democrats are going to win more voters back in places like Nebraska, they need to develop stronger relationships with people in churches. There definitely are some more left-leaning denominations and pastors. It's not like they're all right-wing, but I think they're outnumbered. And the the, evangel- the evangelical side has, has only grown. And um, that's benefited Republicans in those areas. And um, I think it's that's a spot where I think Democrats kind of drop the ball. And um, it makes it easy for Republicans to... Uh, you know, paint them as secular or anti-religion, even though most Democrats I know, I wouldn't say are anti-religion by any means. Yeah. Um, I, I completely agree with that to be, uh, to be honest with you. And, and yeah, and it's just sort of like a, a way in which, and this I don't think is unique to our time of social media. It's probably intensified by our time of social media, but to me, it's sort of like we have this, this tendency to reduce things uh, to a soundbite, right? Uh, and, and to an easily digestible um, position. And so I feel like we, when we think of liberals approaching the church, it's all about all of the negative aspects of church, right? And so um, mm-hmm. when, when a liberal hears something about church, they just paint it with a broad brushstroke, right? And well, so- yeah, they say it's misogynistic, it's homophobic. It's every ist and phobia you can yes. list. <laughs> and, um, and of course, that's they, not untrue, right? <laughs> there, there is yeah, definitely in some cases, truth. it's definitely not untrue. I mean, yeah, you can you can you know look at the Westboro Baptist Church, and it's a living nightmare. Um, but uh, there's also a lot of good that comes from within churches that I don't think they focus on. You talk a lot about the priests um, in your area in the book, um, sort of single-mindedly. Um, sermonizing about abortion and and said issues uh, like wh- why do you think that is why is it that from the conservative this is sort of failing on conservative um, political policy right um, why is it do you think that um, the church has become so reactionary I think for a lot of people it gives them a cause that they feel like they're a, a part of you know like I want to help change society for the better. Uh, what do I think is the most wrong? Well, it's this thing that I um, genuinely perceive as the killing of babies. And I want to end that. And if I can do some small part in that, I uh, feel very fulfilled. You know, um, it, it, it makes it less, a um, lot, lot of stuff within religion is like, you know, it's, it's spiritual or it's about like ancient history and it, it can be kind of esoteric. Mm. But like, if you bring it, down to like you can apply your faith by protesting this specific bill that is going to happen within our legislature just down the street um, that makes it more real for people a more real way to uh, put their faith 
into action. Of course, I would say, you know, you could put your faith into action by volunteering and um, doing all these other great things. And religious people do those things many times too. But um, this is like a activism cause that I, I think brings a lot of fulfillment, even if it brings a lot of simultaneous anger along with it. And, and the critique I have of conservative positions about abortion uh, is that they tend to kind of ignore the fact that abortion rates tend to go down when more liberal policies um, <coughs> expanding, you know, health care and, 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 uh, and, you know, support for families and that sort of thing. And these social welfare programs, when those are in place, abortion rates tend to go down. Right. Well, and, yeah, I don't think the Republican Party actually totally wants to eliminate it because it's so effective for them. <laughs> Well, that's true too. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if they really wanted to just lower it, I mean, yeah, you could have maternity leave and free preschool and, you know, all these things that would have little incremental effects on making it easier for people to bear their own children. But um, that's, I don't think they want to lose that wedge issue. It's, I mean, they, they could have made it illegal in the Supreme Court. They had the, they had Congress and the presidency and the Supreme Court all at the same time for the last two years and they, they didn't. Yeah. Well, and at one point, I think this is even during the Bush administration, the, the the W. Bush administration, like seven of the nine justices were put there by Republican presidents. Right. And, and, and yeah. nothing, nothing ever happened. Right. And so, um, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I feel like this is a, a thing that gets them a lot of I mean, it's a, it's a marketing tool, if nothing else. Right. It's it's a it's a it's a, it's a, a mobilization um, wedge issue, as you say. Um, yeah. And I think the religious people are more genuine. I think the political people are using it as the way you described it's crass right yeah, yeah. um one thing so one thing that you i also appreciated about the book is that you approach the abortion issue with a lot of understanding uh, you you tell a lot of personal stories in this book about um why you're not particularly you know gung-ho about abortion rights either right uh, you have yeah. a very kind of nuanced um uh understanding of it do you want to get into that a little bit because i think sure. it, it's it's a it's a it's a voice that needs to be heard in this conversation. Well, yeah, you know, and, and I've gone to uh, pro-life rallies in the past, especially w when I lived in Nebraska and I was very involved with the church. And I do think there was a lot of beauty there. Uh, the people who I hung out with weren't just uh, screaming at people outside of Planned Parenthood. I feel like that's the caricature of them. You know, many of them were volunteering. They were uh, giving uh, items and charity to places like Catholic Social Services, which provide, you know, um, diapers and formula and all sorts of other things that would, um, you know, make it easier on, on a new mother. Um, and I also believe that um, I've seen times in my life where someone could have been aborted, um, such as like my niece, because my brother was a teenager when he got his girlfriend pregnant, and they didn't do that. And that you know, a person went on to become uh, a great aspect of my life and of my family's life and contributed to our community. And um, out of wedlock births or, or teenage births are, are much higher in rural areas than in metropolitan areas. And um, that would say to a liberal that in those areas, they really need abortion services more. But if you actually talk to people in those areas and don't just say they're voting against their own interests and ask them what their own interests are, uh, you know, many people there are just glad to have any human being into their town because their towns are declining in population. So if someone gives birth to, a, a, you know, an individual, even if there's some gossip about, um, 
a teenager getting pregnant, by the time that baby comes, that baby is welcomed, you know, by the community. And in a small town, um, you get more support too than you do in a big city. So I also see why, you know, abortion rights would have stronger support in a, in a urban area. In a small town, a lot of people are surrounded by their families and everything's much cheaper. So I think in, in towns like my hometown, they ignore the economic considerations that, you know, a, a struggling single mother in a city would deal with who, who may become homeless. That's that isn't clear to someone in Brainerd. They, they see it more in those, those moralistic terms. And it's a way in, I feel like your book is a, an intervention to try and help people understand one another a, a little better um, in the midst of having these conversations. Right. And, and yeah, we are going to disagree on some fundamental level, right. Uh, at some point. Right. But there's a way in which your book, I think, tries to identify a common value that is held across the, the conservative and liberal divide. Um, it's just we sort of understand the ways to achieve that value in different ways. You know, what's really strange is trying to do that and then working on this book for three years and then like six days after it publishes, there's an insurrection at the Capitol. So it's been difficult to pitch this message to people because, it, you know, there's this evidence of um, division and uh, hatred um, that's so visible. And um, it's hard to get above that noise. And, but I can't imagine most of the people in the Capitol had come from places like Brainerd. Like to me, yeah. I think from what I've seen, at least statistically, now that the arrests uh, have been made, I mean, these are basically, well, fairly well-to-do upper middle class, um, petit bourgeois types, right. That, um, uh, have been like, uh, weaponized by QAnon. Yeah. Um, a lot of kids playing cosplay and, and that as well. Right. And, and I think that there's a way in which like, there's the first wave of people who are breaking the windows that got in. And then there's this, just the curiosity people that were just there and like, well, they're not doing anything. Let me see what this is about. And so I, I feel like there's a way in which, um, that situation is a little bit different than um, the type of person that you're describing here. Yeah, I would hope so, but they often get <laughs> uh, lumped together by by people. And you know, in my book, I don't talk about uh, QAnon because I've also seen this effort by a lot of people in the press, and I value the press a lot. And in many ways, I'm a member of the press because I've written for so many publications. Even though now I mostly just author books and. Uh, you know, do market research. Um, so I sympathize with the press, but, you know, the 70 plus million Trump voters, there's, there's a lot of difference between those individuals. And um, they're not all conspiracy theorists and misogynists. Yeah. Um, there, there are those people. I'm not denying their existence. There clearly are those people. But um, yeah, I didn't talk about QAnon because, well, my family who's conservative, a lot of them until like the siege at the Capitol didn't even know what it was. They weren't subscribed to the theory. It was a, you know, a fringe internet thing. They're not on the internet that often. They're like watching football and working manual labor jobs. Yeah. Yeah. That is one thing I have to say. Um, I, some many points in this book, you talk about just the exposure to other people like, um, and, and you, well, let's begin the opening of the book. You talk about the, the filming of, uh, the two Wong Fu movie, the, um, <laughs> uh, having taken place basically in your hometown and how that was 
kind of a beautiful memory for the town, right? The, you, yeah. We would think Very if that beautiful. happened today, this would be like a, a site of great conflict, right? Of ideological conflict between. There would be all sorts of people with cameras trying to like turn it into a culture war battle of look at these Hollywood liberals assaulting these small town people's values. But like in the nineties before like cable news got huge and the internet became what we know it as, it was like, just like, wow, Patrick Swayze is, you know, in drag. Let's go check it out. It was cool. <laughs> and, and they fixed up some um, buildings uh, yeah. for the filming. And so there was like a lot of like cross-cultural sharing. I think you could maybe frame it. In, in that and then that's how the movie ends too. Yeah. At the end of the movie, the town celebrates with the drag queen. So life imitating art in this uh, campy 90s movie that most people probably haven't watched in a long time. Yeah. but And that's a, a great um, – uh, like marker of how far we've fallen or how far Nebraska has fallen, let's say, um, because you have that moment where cross-cultural understanding is possible is emblemized in that uh, filming of the movie there. Um, but then when you think about today, we don't have the only kind of cross-cultural sharing we have is via social media. Right. Uh, and, and, yeah. and so, and I feel like there's a way in which um characterizations of people um, from the rural areas to, from the city areas between those two um, areas um, are kind of like uh, based on a fact that they don't know each other and they don't live with one another uh, for extended periods of time. Um, and, and I have to say living where I live now, um, where a lot of maybe most of the political values of this area, I don't share personally, but I do. Um, I see it, it, it. There's like a, a, a uh, uh, what do they call the gobsmack when when you're confronted with somebody who on the internet feels terrible to you but you know them personally and you know they're actually a wonderful person right and yep. and that disconnect is something you then have to reconcile and that's been I'm not saying it's been easy for me but it's actually been very beneficial I think for my kind of I guess moral outlook on life well and it's also a lot harder to um, hate someone with venom when you're Talk even if they disagree with you when you're when you're talking right in front of them than it is to you know send a 280 character tweet at them. Yeah, uh, like a lot of the stuff that gets said on Twitter and gets amplified because extreme statements do well on social media and they increase engagement, which is time spent on a platform, which means more ads sold. Um, aren't things people would I don't think have the guts to say in real life. Like they're not just walking up to a random person who has a, ran a disagreeing opinion with them and saying, you're a white supremacist in all exclamation points. But that's how it is on Twitter. Yeah, um, it is true. And it works the other way as well. Um, I, I think, Oh yeah. Calling yeah. them cucks and all these other things, you know? Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, from the, the rural perspective, like thinking about urban life, I think lots of people don't really, uh, I think it's a good experience for someone to go to the city um, and, uh, and, and have their worldview shaken up a bit. I, when I lived in New York city, um, I actually went to um, Tim Keller's church for a, a, a time. He's a pretty famous Presbyterian um, pastor. And this was in the late nineties. He was sort of at the height of that uh, of Redeemer church there. And um, my uh, memory of a lot of his sermons was he would say, cause a lot of his, the people in those 
seats were people like me from from places like the Midwest. Um, and he would say that it's always really good for people who've grown up in those environments to come to the city um, as a Christian, where you then see that these Muslims and these atheists are actually better people than you, right? <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's actually a way um, of, uh, it, it has a, there's a moral work being done there. And, and I think that that um, build that, you know, capacity to sort of um, destabilize what you're so sure about in the world um, is something lacking in the world today. And I think um, it's only increased with the time of the internet, which I think maps on neatly to the intensification of politicization that you're talking about in Nebraska politics here. Well, and, and to your point, uh, you know, we've talked fair amount here about like people in cities and liberals misunderstanding uh, people like where I grew up from. Uh, an issue I have with where I live is how they've become more anti-immigrant while their town doesn't even have any immigrants, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not even affected by this issue and they've been able to become so riled up about it. And, um, you know, in areas where, where immigrants actually live, people tend, you can see it in voting patterns. People tend to be more supportive of immigrant rights because like in my Brook in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, like it's clear how they benefit the community. Like I go to their businesses, I see them on the streets, I'm friends with them. It, yeah. It's you know much different than when you're in an isolated town and you're, you're just perceiving someone invading your area, even though you don't know them. Yeah, the area of Pennsylvania that I live in, Johnstown, Altoona, that sort of area is, um, I mean, dying. I mean, the population declines rather significantly. And you can see it when you go to school assemblies. They have the classes all sitting together and progressively they're smaller every year. Um, and they desperately need these immigrants that they're working so hard to keep out. Um, and, and, and not just for economic reasons. I think there are also cultural benefits um, that would really benefit this, this region uh, as well. Especially from a religious point of view too. I mean, yeah. if you're, if you're like I'm Catholic, that the future of the Catholic Church in the United States is, is going to be very heavily Latino, and yeah. you should learn to embrace these people as part of your faith. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I totally agree with that. Um, let's talk a little bit. Um, I don't want to keep you too long, but I want to hit on a couple of other things here. Um, one of which is this immigration issue, since you brought it up. And it's interesting, you kind of frame it in, in with sports, right? You talk about it in terms of the soccer team. Uh, and Tom Osborne comes into play here as well, the, the yeah. former football coach. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about um, immigration and how those attitudes um, kind of uh, have eroded in uh, Nebraska? Yeah, so in, in Nebraska, politicians in the in the '90s weren't as hardline on immigration, and, and most of those politicians were Republicans. They would like if they were like Chuck Hagel, for instance. They um, supported reform and making it easier for those who are ready here to obtain a pathway to citizenship. Uh, we had, you know, Republican Governor Mike Johans opposed all these raids that were occurring in meatpacking plants. I believe he opposed them because of the economic loss to the ag industry. I don't think it was um, so much a, a like a humanitarian thing, but he still took the side of the immigrant laborers. And that really changed around 2006 when the GOP began to tilt further to the right on that issue. Um, like, and, and you, you know, that's why George Bush uh, in 2004, I think he had the highest share of Latino voters um, any GOP president has had since, you know, it's just been downhill for them since they've become more an antagonistic and that side that like W was on and, and Chuck Hagel um, has been uh, usurped by the more hard right side. And I tell the story of Tom Osborne losing a governor's race. 
to illustrate that because Tom Osborne ran for governor in 2006. And if you know anything about college football in Nebraska, you know, this guy is a legend in that state. He won three national titles in the nineties. I mean, no one's more popular than him. He's beloved. And then he, he became a congressman. So he had experience in politics. So you would think this person's going to win the governor's race in an absolute landslide. Well, during the GOP primary, he ran against this candidate, Dave Heineman, who was further to the right. And Osborne said that people who are from other countries, but who have graduated from a Nebraska high school should deserve in-state tuition. He was, he was taking the pro-immigrant stance and, and trying to be humanitarian. Like he, his statement was like, we shouldn't punish them for their parents bringing them here. They're ready here. Let's make them like, you know, productive workers in our economy and educate them. And Heinemann was like, no, this is an illegal immigrant magnet. And he, you know, he, all these ads against immigration and Osborne being soft in immigration, we shouldn't, um, you know, give tuition to them. We, we shouldn't give any benefits, even prenatal care, even though he said he was pro-life, we shouldn't give prenatal mm. care to undocumented immigrants. And Heinemann won in an upset in the GOP primary that the, the GOP in Nebraska at that time embraced that hard right position and they love Tom Osborne. So people really had to go right on that issue to not support Tom Osborne. And then, you know, Heinemann kind of set the path after that. Uh, the next person who became governor was Pete Ricketts. And when Pete Ricketts ran for Congress, he, he was kind of like Osborne. He was more pragmatic about immigration and he lost comes back eight years later, runs for governor, and he's even further to the right of Heinemann, wins the GOP primary by going to the right on immigration. And that's just kind of become the trend there. Uh, the most crazy thing Brickett said was uh, a month ago, our governor said that undocumented workers or illegal immigrants, whichever term you use, um, who work at meatpacking plants wouldn't be eligible to receive the COVID vaccine, which even if you are anti-immigrant, that's just the worst public health policy and then he had to walk it back and try to like equivocate and say he didn't mean that. But that was his statement. Like, we don't even want to give them vaccines. That's how strong I am against immigration. And that is a huge shift from where Tom Osborne was and from where the governors were in the early 2000s and the late 90s. And that's all within one party. And what's happened in Nebraska is happening nationwide. Um, you know, that that party has changed and that's helped enable Trump. Normally, in the past, the, the stances he took on immigration would have disqualified him. He would have gotten sunk. Instead, that helped him win the GOP primary. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you can can you imagine? I mean, I'm not. I don't support the rehabilitation of George W. Bush's reputation. <laughs> Let me just kind of preface this. <laughs> yeah, the Great um, Recession was pretty awful in the the wars. And yeah, yeah. Like, let's not forget the million dead Iraqis, right? But um, but um, I uh, I. Can you imagine a, a Republican presidential candidate running on the fact that he can speak Spanish, right? I mean, that, that, that's a marker of the, of how far that party has drifted on that particular issue. And it, it's gotta be like people like Lou Dobbs. Like, I, I, I mean, am I, I mean, there's gotta be some way in which there's gotta be some kind of media influenced that helped chart that change. I mean, wouldn't you think? Yeah. Um, I would say there's probably some media influence. I mean, there's media influence just in general and how everything has become more partisan. I mean, people's media intake now is uh, untrue Facebook stories, more, you know, more often than it is vetted journalism. Yeah. Um, the parties have just 
it's just like every issue they've become more different from each other it's almost as if democrats became because democrats during that time did become more accepting of immigrants like uh democrats became more supportive of programs that could be called amnesty uh you know a, a democrat from 2000 wouldn't even be able to run on that platform today they'd be called anti-immigrant it's it's almost as if if the democrats went left the republicans had to go right on an issue or vice versa i i do think a lot of our political stances are defined by what we perceive the other side would want and we sort of run to the other end of the room um as fast as we can um and and that goes back to the the way we've kind of approach this as if it's sports fandom. Um, and so, yeah, um, I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, l- let's talk about Trump um, and his sort of influence. And I guess I'm, I might be asking you to progress, um, prognosticate here, uh, prognosticate, excuse me, here um, a little bit. But do you, um, I mean, his influence on the Republican Party is a little scary um, in the way in which you chart how that one, the Republican governor was able to kind of radicalize the unicameral um, legislature within Nebraska. Um, I do feel like in some ways he is picking up the Trumpian um, approach to things. Oh, he absolutely is. He is very Trumpian. Yeah. And, and, and I feel like an older school Republican, like Ben Sass. Let me talk about Ben Sass a little bit because um, okay. you have very similar feelings. I see, I see in the book that I do about him. All of this high talking liberal or uh, kind of liberal rhetoric, liberal appealing rhetoric about civic uh, and, and of civic approaches to things, right? Um, and yet he will go ahead and vote for whatever Trump wants anyway, right? Um, he's just going to try and act like he's not part with Trump. Uh, and I feel like there's like a hollow traditional conservative response to like Trumpian radical Republican policies. Oh, and speaking of Ben Sass, so the one time he voted against Trump then was on impeachment um, recently and he voted to impeach Trump and then his party rebuked him. Yeah. And um, they didn't, they stopped short of censuring him, but they, they gave, it was like they were disappointed and they <laughs> were regretful. This language was very strange. Like it sounded like a, a polite parent like chastising a child. They passed this really, I mean, that resolution speaks to the cult of personality that Trump has in the Republican Party. He's out of office and Sass's vote didn't matter. They still didn't, you know, Democrats didn't have nearly enough votes yeah. to pass the impeachment. And yet they still spent all this time having all these meetings, numerous county GOP parties did censor him, uh, censure him. And then the, the state party passes this very strange sounding cult sounding really uh resolution what i'll say about sass is the good things he's done is he doesn't engage in conspiracy theories at all Mm -hmm. and he has called out people of his own party but like like i said when it comes time to vote aside from that impeachment vote always voted with trump no matter what he said and let's be realistic he voted with his party whenever they needed his vote like if there was a confirmation for a questionable um cabinet appointment if you know, if one person could swing it, Sass would vote Republican. If the impeachment would have came down to like, if, the, if you know, let's say six more Republicans would have voted for uh, impeachment and they would only need one more. I don't think Sass would be the final vote. He can give that vote when he knows there's no chance it's actually going to go against the Republican wishes. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it's just the ineffectual response from more reasonably minded Republicans. Well, yeah, um, he had four years to actually vote against these things, like the border declaration that yeah. he talked about for two months, saying it was an overstepping of the executive branch. 
came down to vote, you voted Trump's position. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I feel like that is also playing. I mean, he's obviously, you know, fighting for his own job, although he's not running for oh, yeah. election, right? Well, no. So, well, it's not clear. He just got reelected and he has about the cushiest job of anyone in Congress. So the Nebraska Democrats are pretty inept. And I, I write about that in, in one of the book's chapters. Um, they had a terrible candidate run against them, one who they actually tried to get resigned in the middle of it. And they launched a writing campaign against their own candidate because <laughs> he sent these texts that were like harassing his own workers. And it was just a huge shit show. And so SAS won like by, by, by like, I'd, I'd have to look at it. I mean, I think he won by like 50 percentage points or something crazy in November. So he's good for six years. And, I, and he hasn't said if he's going to run or not. I, I suspect he might try to run for president or if not run for president, you know, try to get a cabinet position if, if Republicans were to win in, in 2024. Um, but he, he's safe for another six years. And if he had ran again, the only opposition he'd ever face would be from within his own party. Well, and that's the fear is being primaried, right? By, by one of these like QAnon radicals who might, um, who might actually. Uh, but a lot could change in six years. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Um, I, I don't want to end though on a kind of negative. Um, you do sort of end the book um, with this chapter called um, Hidden Progressivism, right? Um, and along the way is a really interesting chapter for those of you interested in the culture war on, in, on campus, uh, this Turning Point USA um, episode at the University of Nebraska is, is really interesting, actually, and, and I highly recommend folks taking a look at that. But um, I want to talk about um, what you mean about hidden progressivism within this context. So what I mean is that if you look at Nebraska on, on just like who they vote for president or who they voted for governor um, or who they put in Congress, they've gone very far to the right. Um, th not only have they purged Democrats, they've you know supported Republicans who keep moving further to the right of the ones who were previously elected. However, if you look outside of just partisan politics, there are several ways in which you can see progressive attitudes in Nebraska, even though it's you know a conservative state. Uh, so one example is the reforming of the unicameral, the reform of the state legislature to make it a unicameral, and how you know all this progressive legislation was able to get passed because party labels weren't attached to it. We've already gone over that part. Um, another is we're the only state in the United States where all of our uh, utilities are are public power. So uh, we, they're publicly owned power companies throughout the entire state. Um, you know, that could be deemed as socialism. Mm -hmm. uh, but Nebraska is very much a public power state. Um, there's been environmental activism when I mean, we're the founder of we founded Arbor Day. And um, the Keystone Pipeline was stalled in many ways because of all the activism that occurred in Nebraska, opposing it. And um, Another example is ballot measures. Mm. So when you ask people to vote on an issue and you put it in a paragraph on a ballot and they don't have to choose R or D, they're just saying, do I want this thing? When that has happened, Nebraskans have increased the minimum wage. They've capped the interest rates that payday loan companies can charge and they've expanded Medicaid. And that's all just within the last few years. Those are issues that are uh, opposed by Republicans and would be considered progressive. But although people there don't actually support the Democratic Party for the most part, they will support some of those issues. And you know, the next one they're trying to get is um, some sort of marijuana decriminalization or, or legalization. Mm. So if you look a little deeper, there are exceptions 
to it being like a holy red state. And I guess this is the the challenge for progressives, right? Or for Democrats, especially. Let me just say Democrats. Um, somehow Republicans have been... I mean, all the things you describe, in addition to the fact that they have that you have a, a really unique electoral college uh, representation as well. Oh yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, we're yeah. one of two states that allocates our votes by district. So Joe Biden won Omaha, and he got a single electoral vote, and the four other uh, went to Donald Trump. And um, Republicans have tried to end that seventeen times, but they've been defeated. Yeah, yeah. So there there is a way in which there's like a uh, these. Nebraskans have demonstrated um, com- communal values that liberals should appreciate, right? Um, um, that these policies that you've described emerge out of these sentiments, these these um, these um, attitudes, these communal attitudes, these good attitudes, these good philosophies. Um, and yet, Republicans have been the ones to be able to activate those in terms of policy. Um, Democrats, as long as they continue this sort of like smug approach um, and just reducing everything to an ism of some sort um, and a pathology that there's something wrong mentally with these people, right? Um, then they're neglecting an opportunity actually to kind of enact some of the policies they say they actually um, strive for. Do you have advice <laughs> for them? What's, what's tough is that even if a local person is rational and respectful, they carry all the baggage of the national party with them. Yeah. And that, that can be tough to shake. Um, any advice? Well, you know, a lot of times when Democrats are trying to pass some initiative that's like, uh, you know, a government sponsored program, they just always assume that it's in someone's own interest. I, I think what people who um, have done good when they've done things like expand Medicaid or cap payday loan interest. They've done a good job of going into those communities and not just um, patronizing them to say like, this is what this thing will do. Um, you know, this is why it's good. And it, you know, it's not just a, a, a big government handout. We're just trying to put in some realistic rules to help people. Um, and they had success with that. The more they're able to, to, put that message out like that and make it about an issue, hmm. um, the better time they'll have. But it's tough because I see those issues having success, like the minimum wage and the Medicaid um, and how that was marketed. And that worked because it wasn't in a partisan context. When it's a candidate representing those par- par- um, when it's a candidate that's attached to those policies in that state, they're still going to have a much tougher time for the time being. Um, because people will say, well, I thought I liked this thing, but now a Democrat's supporting it. I'll have to rethink that. But I think they just need to do a lot better job out there of um, instead of just saying, oh, this is what's good for you to say, this is what this thing does. You know, what's your opinion? And a lot of people may decide that it's good for them. Yeah, there was an interesting article in Commonweal a few months ago um, about a, an, a campaign to, I think it was increase or uh, expanding Medicaid in I believe it was Idaho, um, which was an extremely um, rural state as well, extremely conservative. And they talked about the method, um, the kind of barnstorming method that they used going through and actually talking to people in small towns um, and and old school organizing in that way and how that was um, resulted in them actually passing unexpectedly this uh, Medicaid expansion in uh, in a place where you wouldn't think it would. And it had to do with 
kind of eschewing these sort of um, ideological stances and particularly the brand that you're talking about here in favor of the policy, right? And, and, and approaching people person to person and, uh, and, and trying to pitch the values that you both share. Uh, and and I, I think that there's something a really, I think there's a really beautiful lesson to be had there. And, and I really enjoyed reading your book, Ross, <laughs> I have to say. Oh, thank you. So, um, it was, it was really great. And um, why don't you, um, as we close up here, why don't you um, tell people how they can find the book and how they can ke- keep up with your work? Oh, sure thing. Well, y- you can uh, find the book um, on the University Press of Kansas website or on Amazon or bookshop.org or on Barnes and Noble's website, or maybe your uh, local bookstore may allow you to order it from their website. Um, of course, some brick and mortar stores will hold it, but depending on where the listener is, I don't know where to send them. <laughs> and uh, where you can follow me, um, just uh, I'm at Ross Benish on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And um I also have a website, uh, rossbenish.com. Well, Ross Benish, thank you so much. This was a, a lot of fun, uh, a very insightful conversation. I really enjoyed um, your book, and I look forward to the work that you do in the uh, future. This is uh, I, I appreciate the unique angle that you bring to these kinds of conversations. You have a nuanced and, uh, and very kind of thoughtful approach to these, and I really appreciate it, and I hope my listeners did too. Well, thanks so much. For everybody listening for Ross Benish, my name is Danny Anderson. Thank you again for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast and get out and buy Rural Rebellion. <laughs>